from Chicago. It's the Live from the Heartland show. I'm Michael James. I'm here with my cohort, Katie Hogan, and we're bringing you live from the Heartland or Heartland at Home as it's known during the time of the pandemic, number 89. It's for the week of February 19th in the year 2022. Uh, we're going to talk music, probably we're going to talk sports, we are going to talk a lot of sports, and uh, who knows what else we're going to fill you in on. Uh, how are you doing, Katie? You're looking good. Oh, good. Great. Um, yeah, nice uh, snowstorm yesterday. I really like the feel of being um, cozied up on a winter's night with snow flying outside one's window. There's something cool about that. Um, attended my second funeral in, in a week. And I guess we'll talk about our uh, friend, Al Griman, who passed this week at age 90. Um, a very full life, a giant of a guy in all ways. Not unlike Mimi Harris the week before, a giant of a gal. So I hope they're, uh, they're well, kind there of happy. Too. We may as well mention uh, Todd Gitlin passed. Uh, he was a you know, a, a, a very strong intellectual in New York. He was uh, from the early SDS days at Students for Democratic Society. He was the, one of the early presidents. Uh, I had the honor of working with Todd Gitlin in Uptown. Uh, he and his then wife, Nancy Hollander, were uh, around the Joint Community Union Project. Uh, they did a book called Uptown, uh, which uh, talks about the community and the organizing work of Join. Uh, Todd was a, a wonderful guy, uh, was always really nice to me. One of my favorite times with him was when he came and bailed me out of jail over at the Somerdale Police Station. Um, I have a picture of uh, one of us on each side of the barred and uh, you know, covered door. Um, he's gonna be sorely missed. He was a, a, you know, a proponent of the new left and then a critic of the new left. And there was a lot of dialogue after he passed among Students for Democratic Society members from way back about uh, the good and the not so good and how he was basically loved. Um, Michael, is, isn't it interesting to um, look back over the decades now? I remember when you first introduced me to uh, the name of Todd Gitlin, it was around that Uptown book. But as someone who was active in the, the stuff that he then taught for the next many decades, not unlike yourself, isn't it interesting to see who winds up being the, um, the mouthpiece, if, it, if you will, for media to call on to get an era translated? I just... Well, he the, got a lot of attention that way because partly he, he was criticizing uh, the new left and you know he he went back and forth on a few issues but uh you know i'm not going to get into all that because i basically after a certain point i didn't pay that much attention and I, then in the last year or so i started thinking much more about being in touch with people um and i wish i had gotten in touch with todd the last time i saw him was at the heartland cafe i'm not sure what year it was and what he was there for but he was on the patio and we had a little bit of a chat and he was with some other friends. Uh, we'll see if I have pictures of that somewhere hidden away. Well, yeah. I'm gonna share a little bit as best I can about a report I saw, I think on Thursday night on PBS on the news hour. Uh, it was a report about the wellness community and the anti-vax movement. And there were two women, 
One was a yoga instructor who talked about how the anti-vax movement has taken on the language of the yoga community and turned a number of people in the yoga community into anti-vaxxers. And this is a woman who I guess teaches yoga. There was another woman who described herself or was described as a wellness influencer. And she was deep into the wellness community and she noticed and pointed out that every time she looked something up, there was a, right next to it was anti-vax information. And so she stood by that for a long amount of time and then just the overwhelming evidence turned her and uh, she criticized the wellness community and talking about uh, how, how linked the two things are these days. So the anti-vax community has really infiltrated not only the yoga community, but the overall wellness community. And I was thinking back to our early days in the heartland when we were looking at all the health food stuff and the, you know, Adele Davis and uh, a lot of books and fasting and all that. And, um, you know, I thought of ourselves as progressives, although I knew there were always conservatives, rural people who were kind of into the, uh, the health food movement and were not necessarily progressive politically. They don't necessarily go together, but they should. Um, okay, I'm not quite sure how to respond to that. I think uh, what you're saying is that things get combined that don't necessarily make logical sense to be combined or that will maybe further muddy the issue of healthcare and how to be well. I, I think that that is all very available in this period of COVID. Um, and we've seen responses from some of people we know and like uh, that are anti-vaxxers. Um, and yeah, I can't speak to it. I, I know that I am feeling much safer given that I'm vaccinated and boosted as a 72 year old with COVID. I mean, with uh, COPD, uh, sorry about that. That was a slip of the tongue. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I, if people feel safer unvaccinated, they're flying against all of the, um, you know, figures and data that have been collected thus far. It's unvaccinated that are dying in larger numbers. And, but I, to me, the biggest thing really still with this whole COVID thing is, um, how badly America has done, how poorly we are situated to be, to act together as a nation and take care of ourselves. We've still got the highest death rate and we still have um, the most cases and we don't have the most people. We've really failed. Um, speaking of which, maybe we should just go on to the global. <clears throat> well, let, let, you got something I would follow up. What? With there were also some articles about welcoming the right wing to the 60s and how they've kind of adopting, uh, you know, the style, the language, the freedom now, uh, you know, incorporating Dr. King's words to, uh, to kind of pro promote the right wing agenda. Uh, Who was welcoming them, I'm wondering? It was just a kind of a headline in either the New York Times or the Washington Post or the, I'm not sure where I saw it. The first time I remember them doing that was when they stood outside the vote counting in Broward County, Florida and stopped the counting of ballots for Al Gore and giving us the hellacious history that we've had since 2000 on voting on politics on the whole flipping deal. And uh, they were acting like leftists out there on the other side of the glass. They were 
They were all staffers for Republicans who pretended to be real people <laughs> asking for ballots to not be uh, counted. Yeah, to stop yeah, that. And behind all that, behind the whole right-wing movement is a lot of money. There are a lot of very wealthy people who uh, apparently just really get it wrong, <laughs> I might say. <laughs> I mean, there's a guy, an executive from Facebook who's left to go you know, work with uh, Bannon and uh, promote right. the Trump agenda. Uh, right. You know, it's uh, it's kind of strange to me that these uh, wealthy people with a lot of good education and knowledge uh, can be so taken in by their own kind of self-interest and money making. And I, I just don't understand it, but I'm uh, certainly willing to join the battle to try to correct it and fight against it for as long as I can. Interesting uh, start to the show. I'm sure we'll cheer up, maybe. Well, I, <laughs> We're gonna well, talk we about Olympics. We're gonna talk about music, but uh, just globally, the uh, prime minister of Canada, Prime Minister Trudeau enacted the Emergencies Act for the first time in Canada's history in an effort to end the protests uh, in Ottawa against COVID restrictions. Uh, the decision allows the government to regulate or prohibit travel to, from, or within <clears throat> any speci specified area. Those who persist will have their bank accounts frozen, their trucks towed, and likely be fined and or arrested. Um, I don't know what the current status of that is, of that protest is. I, I think it had fits and starts of um, other uh, spots uh, lighting up along the border, but nothing as big as the, the one, uh, the original, and um, I'm forgetting the name. Well, they're, they're clearing the streets in Ottawa as we speak. I mean, there's a lot of news about that going on, and we'll have more on that later, and we'll try to maybe digest that whole that movement and you know where, well, where it's it connected, came from, who's backing it. Connected to what you were saying. I mean, the COVID has done a lot of different things, and uh, you know the truckers thing is one of them. And whether or not, how many actual truckers were part of that will come out as well. Okay, let's move on to the environment. Uh, I've got some interesting stuff here. Forever might not be as long as it used to be. Hmm. PFASs. I don't know how you say that a toxic chemical class were nicknamed forever chemicals because of the near nature to be near impossible to destroy. They tend to accumulate in water and soil, but scientists at the EPA, that's the Environmental Protection Agency, recently found that a new heat pressure technique can destroy 99% of PFASs in water. Okay, so, that's good so for all you people following that. Everyone remember hearing about that from Deborah Shore on this show a number of times. She, she talked about those uh, chemicals. She also talked about getting them out of the water and she is now with the EPA. So she's helping draw attention to that. And so that is very good news, yes. That is good. Okay, so Pamela Moses, a 44 year old black woman in Memphis was sentenced last week to six years in prison for trying to register to vote in 2019 despite having a felony conviction. Um, and in addition to government officials having made and admitting to making several mistakes, um, including a probation officer telling Moses she was approved to vote and signing her registration card, Moses was still found guilty and of perjury and sentenced. That seems to be a heavy sentence related to casting a ballot, particularly when 
we have movements all across the country now, which we cover on this program to um, eliminate rules for uh, anti-voting for felonies, uh, particularly um, folks who have paid their debt to society as it were, um, as we have in Illinois, once someone has done their sentence, they can vote again. So I'm not sure if in Tennessee what the law is, but it's probably not as good as the one in Illinois. Well, it's a red state with a big blue bubble in Nashville. Uh, and I got more, no, that's Nashville, but I got more from Tennessee on Memphis. Starbucks has fired seven workers there for regulations unknown to those who were fired, all of whom were active in organizing a union shop. Uh, that's part of the broader movement to uh, unionize Starbucks across the country. Right now, there are more than 50 stores in more, nearly 20 states who have uh, initiated labor uh, or union efforts. Uh, remember, it first started up in Buffalo. Um, here are the Starbucks stores that have public campaigns in Chicago right now. Uh, Randolph in Chicago, uh, no, excuse me, Randolph and Wabash in Logan Square at California. That's 2543 California out in LaGrange and at 55th and Woodlawn in Hyde Park. So uh, when you go to Starbucks, ask uh, the people, thank them for their work, ask them if they got any uh, information on the union, how's it going, et cetera. Uh, there is no call for a boycott at this time, but certainly there's an opportunity to talk to the friendly baristas. Cool. Um, um, let's see, how about uh, energy? Um, New York's first offshore wind farm? Yeah. being built right now. Um, I'm not sure if that means it's being built union eyes. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think that is a, it's a union, union project, union, union workers. And it's uh, the 130 megawatt South Fort wind project will be in the Atlantic Ocean about 35 miles east of Montauk Point. South Fork wind is uh, one fifth offshore wind one fifth offshore wind projects in New York with the plan to have these farms providing 30% of New York state's power by 2035. I remember the Kennedy family being quoted as being against wind farms outside Hyannisport yeah. um, in a classic example of NIMBY, not in my backyard, even if it's good for everybody else. Um, and the question that uh, our producer asks is, are we gonna be seeing wind farms out on Lake Michigan? And um, we should actually. I mean, if they, if they, there's there's good headwinds out there, and you don't have to go that far out, thirty miles, but people will complain. People will say it ruins their view or their sailing or whatever else. So interesting to, uh, you know, interesting to do the fight of what's right for us and for the environment and for the most number of people versus what some of us kind of go, oh, I wish I still had my view or whatever. Well, it'll be, uh, you probably won't even be able to notice the windmills out on Lake Michigan with all the sailboats that'll be out there in the next another month or so. Uh, be a lot of things to look out, look at. Uh, let's take a look at COVID. Uh, in Illinois, you know, there's a, there was a, a decision by a judge downstate that invalidated Governor Pritzker's requirement that masks be worn in schools to prevent the spread of COVID. Um, CPS says they will continue to require masks in the classroom. 
the judge's decree also invalidated other Pritzker orders, including required vaccinations for school employees. So, so that's, that's the reversal of the, the court decision that then Pritzker and company appealed and Thursday of this week, an Illinois appeals court dismissed that appeal of Pritzker's, um, the decision on Pritzker's mandates. So um, except for certain school districts making their own decisions like CPS, uh, we're up a creek without a paddle with in terms of kids um, passing it on. Uh, and, you know, and also the, those requirements you mentioned about uh, required vaccinations for school personnel. Um, it, it continues, it continues. Pritzker's gonna have a big fight on his hand with, with all these uh, Republicans. Um, I just know that. I just much. got a little, uh, this is some breaking news thanks to the AP. A judge has handed a two year sentence to Kim Potter, the ex officer in Minneapolis who said she confused gun with taser in killing Dante Wright. It's not in Minneapolis. It's, um, I forget where it was. I think it was in Wisconsin somewhere. No, well, whatever. A what year sentence? How, two years? Two years. Remember, she said it thought it was a taser, but it was her oh, gun yeah. and she killed the guy. Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's, uh, that's that. Uh, you know, the roots of this show we're at a restaurant, we're at the Heartland Cafe, which both Katie and I were co-founders of. And, uh, you know, we were honored to do the show from the stage at the Heartland for many years. Uh, and then we, and we, were, we were enjoyed, it was fun. It was like the yeah. breakfast hour downtown. It was good. And then, uh, then we moved it to downtown and uh, now we're doing it via Zoom. But uh, we are sympathetic to restaurants everywhere. And uh, so I'm gonna share that after 31 years of serving hot dogs, Polish sausages and fries, Fast Track Restaurant in the West Loop has closed for good this past Wednesday. Regulars and fans lined up around the block for a final goodbye meal from the store as owner Eddie Tefka says he looked forward to spending more time with his family. Uh, uh, just because you give up your restaurant doesn't mean you don't have a lot of work to do. But anyhow, congratulations <laughs> for the long run over there at the Fast Track. And um, we're going to try to go to as many restaurants in the months to come as we can, because who knows what's going to happen to them. And I like yeah. eating out. Uh, yeah, we have both felt the pain of our fellow uh, small business owners, particularly restaurants in these last two years. It's been I can't imagine what it would have been like for us. I mean, I know we, we would have uh, served outside because we were lucky enough to have a big outside area. We would have been able to keep doing that, but uh, we wouldn't have been able to meet the tax requirements or the mortgage or anything else on no business and you know, no, no bar business, for example. Yeah, um, it's rough for restaurants still. It's, oh, it's very, very rough. And, and people's favorite places, like the one you just mentioned. I mean, Fast Track was always like, uh, if I had a downtown um, required date, which I, as you well know, I had many uh, in the name of the restaurant. And there was a, uh, there was some kind of disciplinary office located on Superior Street, not a couple blocks from Fast Track. And more than once, 
I was headed there for a hot dog in um, in uh, recognition for getting my job done. <laughs> it makes so me want a Polish sausage with grilled onions and peppers and the whole deal. Ooh, it's been a long time. Yeah, Eating a lot of tofu, food. a lot of oatmeal, a lot of fruits <laughs> and vegetables. Well, um, what do we Let's got? Go to Rogers now? Park. Tell us about what's coming up on our endorsement session for Network Forty Nine, Kate. Well, that's that's for members of Network Forty Nine, which is an independent political organization you've heard about from here. Um, we're the group that does um, committees, do a lot of volunteer work on education. Uh, this past week, Network Forty Nine sent around a Valentine's card to the teachers and staff of the six schools in our ward because we just feel and candy we've sent them candy and a card saying we appreciate you um but the other serious work that has been done by network 49 includes um getting uh, on the ballot and winning a moratorium on the expansion of um K, uh, charter uh, schools charter schools that was uh, one of the first things we did about five years ago then we also uh signed on to the um plaintiffs for the consent decree um, oversight, which uh, single-handedly Michael Harrington, who we've had on the show talking about it, has maintained our connect. And we are actually recruiting, hopefully, some younger members who can uh, do the thing and, um, and, and help us out with that going forward. So next Saturday, a week from today, um, Network 49 is holding its endorsement session for the June primary. If you are a member, great, come show up, listen to them. If you aren't, uh, sign up, go to network49.net and check it out. I think we got a guest coming in now, so I'm going to. Yeah, we got it. We're going to come back after a little music. We'll be right back with more from the Heartland. Stay tuned here on the left end of your dial or wherever you're watching or listening to this show. We'll be right back. Midnight at the oasis Send your camel to bed Shadows painting our faces Gordon Thompson, how are you doing, Gordon? Let's talk sports. You're well, hello, Chicago. Chicago. I'm feeling good and uh, ready to come into downtown Rogers Park. <laughs> you're getting in on Friday and we're taping this on Thursday and you're going to be here for what reason? Something special. Well, I'm coming in for uh, the great Andre Fomby's induction into Loyola Sports Hall of Fame. And uh, he's one of many Loyola Tracksters that uh, I coached that are in the Hall of Fame at Loyola University, great Jesuit school. And uh, I'm really proud of him. And it's really a, a nice accomplishment. It's been uh, quite a few years since Andre's attended school at Loyola. He graduated, uh, I think, 1992 or three. And uh, so it's been a little bit of a stretch. And um, it's going to be great to have him back on campus. Campus looks quite a bit different now than it did uh, back in, in the early 1990s. Well, when Andre first started running for you, didn't you have that cinder track right there in the middle of the campus? Well, it, well there was not a cinder track. It was in front of Hallis uh, Hall, which is still there, a um, 
not a real track, not an oval at all. It was uh, one end had a beautiful curve and then the other end was flat. So a square turn. So you do, you know, you, we didn't train there much, maybe a little bit of this and that, but we did most of our work over at the Cinder Park in Amundsen Park and over at uh, uh, Angel Guardian. There was a 320 meter little cinder track for Angel Guardian. And we would just jog over there about a mile away from campus, right up Devon Avenue and, and uh, hang a left, I think right there by Angel Guardian and man, Nice little 300 meter track. They hated it. <laughs> I, I remember that track and I don't think it's much left of it. I think um, it's gone. Uh, so this weekend when Andre gets inducted into the Biola Sports Hall of Fame, also there's a big basketball game and that's sold out. That's Loyola Drake. You got any take on that? Well, Loyola's in uh, right now, they're in the Missouri Valley Conference, and that's, you know, a good Missouri Valley Conference foe. I think there's a lot of Drake alumni in Chicago, and certainly uh, a lot of people that work, you know, our good friend Jim Canadal, he worked at, uh, was the head track coach at Drake at one time on the, on the ladies' side before he came to Northwestern and Loyola and UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago, for his track expertise. So there is a, a good a bit of uh, Drake people here in Chicago. I think it's going to be a great game. But at halftime, it uh, is going to be a nice induction ceremony for this year's uh, Loyola uh, Hall of Fame class, of which Andre is one of the people. Well, speaking of, uh, of history at Loyola and track, uh, Loyola has a long history of really good track teams. You had a number of All-Americans. Uh, before you, I don't remember who the coach was unless it was Tom Cooney. Tom Cooney went on to do races and marathons, you know, great runs all over the world with a big operation. And I think you were telling me he's involved in some new track uh, events that are going on. Yeah, Tom Cooney is um, a million miles a minute. He's got always something going on. Uh, the history of Loyola Track, though, before to get to Cooney's uh, new, new deal at the uh, the history of Loyola Track is long and storied all the way back from the 1920s of Joe Tigerman uh, start, starting a program. He's also in the Loyola Hall of Fame. Yeah, Joe. And, uh, uh, you know, an Olympian in Tom O'Hara, who set the world record indoors for the mile at the uh, Chicago Daily News Relays, which was a big deal back in the early 1960s, live on Worldwide Sports on ABC. Tom O'Hare broke the world record and uh, became a member of the 1964 Olympic team. He won the NC2A mile, won the NC2A cross country championship. Uh, so he was really Loyola's first really great athlete. And then speaking of Cooney, Cooney put Loyola on the map also in the 1980s for his four by 800 relay of uh, four great legs, all guys from Chicago area, most of the South side. And all four legs are in the Loyola Hall of Fame, as well as Cooney is. And uh, then there was a little bit of a drought of what was cooking um, into the, you know, the uh, 70s and the 80s. And I got at Loyola about 1984 and um, not much of a budget, not much of a scholarship program, but uh, we worked hard and we attracted the best from Chicago area, Eddie Slowakowski, sub four minute mile, Mark Burns, uh, phenomenal uh, 
great coach in his own right. Jim Westfall, four-time All-American, just a great uh, athlete. And Fomby and Bill Cole and on and on and on. And down on the south side, Terry Sheehan and uh, Jason Rush and all over the places. Just a, a great tradition of Loyola track with the Phillips family, the Kellers and the, uh, the Wards, everybody that uh, – put it together, including our first All-American. Yeah, on the women's side ever. Uh, yeah, 10,000 meters. Great. Who was that? Well, it's the, who was the person that you uh, talked to on Facebook? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> so this history of Loyola Track is fantastic. And uh, we're really proud. And it's going to be a, a really nice celebration Saturday. Uh, at Loyola uh, Stadium at the Joe Gentile Arena. You know, another guy who was a good runner for you was Tom Michael, who is now running Boise State Radio out there in Idaho. And he goes on these long, uh, you know, 50-mile runs and competes still. Um, Tom's an amazing person more ways than one. He was a half-miler at Loyola and in high school. And now he's turned to these ultra-marathons. It's a... It's phenomenal what the brain can do for a person, yeah. Well, one of the reasons that we keep having you on, besides you uh, cheerfully uh, livening up our show and sharing good information, is uh, you follow the Olympics, and you were on recently before the Olympics were going on, and you talked a lot about uh, uh, the shooting and the running event. What's that called? The biathlon. The biathlon, yeah. You yeah. went into a lot of detail about that. But now that the Olympics have been on for uh, well over a week uh, and probably coming up toward the end, let's, uh, how about you starting to give us a little rundown about what you saw, what you think is important, what uh, are the political and justice questions going forward, et cetera, et cetera. Take it away, Gordon. Run, run your mouth. <laughs> hey, Michael, do you remember when we visited Lake Placid, New York? I do. And went, and went to the site of the 1980 Olympics. Do you remember standing on that outdoor speed skating track? It wasn't the ice when we were there. It was in the summertime. Do you remember? It, was, it actually had water on it. When we it had there. a little bit of water on it. But the, the person that made that speed skating track famous was Eric Hyden, who's now a medical doctor. He won every single event in that Olympics uh, four or five gold medals, every single race from the sprints to the long distances from 500 meters to 10,000 meters. He performed the most greatest Olympic speed skating moment of all time. We were on that track, Michael. Do you, did you, could remember, you feel it? Could you feel have, the buzz? I have a, I have photographs of, of <laughs> that and the big, uh, the big structures for the skiing that they had still. It was pretty cool be, being at Lake Placid, but on here at this Olympics in Beijing, China, which is the first site for both the Summer and Olympic Games. They're the first country to, uh, and the first city to host both Summer and Winter Games. The big drama story that involves both dramatic uh, effect in sport and politics is the women's uh, ice skater who got uh, disqualified for a a drug violation she, and that her name is Camila Valieva and she's only 15 years old, smooth, silky, just a beautiful 
uh, figure skater. The first to probably was going to get the, the quad four rotations in the air for women. It's been done a few times for men, but uh, rep uh, normally for men, but women, um, this would have been the first Olympics. And uh, she's been doing them left and right in practice and in preliminary competitions, no problem, no sweat. And hands-on favorite to win the gold. But in uh, the pairs or in her preliminary competition, she uh, tested positive for a heart medication. And uh, she's claiming that it was her grandpa's uh, heart medication. Well, the sidelight to this medication is it improves endurance. It does. And as a 15-year-old, that kind of a wispy young frame, I can see, I need something to help my endurance. I'm so weak. I can't. So, you know, it, if it smells like a duck, quack like a duck, it's a duck. You know, it's not her grandpa's medication that she... Uh, she's surrounded with an entourage of other uh, people. The Russian, the country has a long and storied history of doping, and that's why they are not competing under their country's flag in this Olympics or the previous Olympics or the Olympics to come, because they have shown that it's a state organized program, institutionalized doping started at the government level. Think about it if our government level government was involved with doping of our athletes. Joe Biden right there with the uh, eh, probably a little bit better with if Donald Trump were doing it. But anyhow, it's um, it boggles your mind how a government would be involved with a sport doping program. But that's the program that was involved with Sochi Olympics, the previous Winter Olympic Games were the doping control at that was a sham, a total sham, a little sliding window in the door where the Russian uh, samples were passed and then the door was closed and then they disappeared. Those samples disappeared and did not get tested. So absolute just a history of uh, shenanigans. And uh, here's just a continuation. The, the crime is here's a wonderful athlete that was denied a great opportunity. She didn't need those performance enhancing drugs to do what she can do. She's great naturally, and she should have been allowed to compete naturally. And she probably would have won the gold on her own. As it is, uh, as of tonight, she got fourth place in the free skate due to pressure. She, uh, the international pressure and media focus on her of how she was caught doping, but still allowed to compete has been unbelievable on a 15-year-old. And that's unfair on any account. And uh, maybe she did bring it upon herself, but I think it's more her entourage that brought it upon her. I don't think that she, as a 15-year-old, can say, hey, I'm going to go out and find this one medicine that's going to improve my endurance. Well, Gordon Thompson, on an earlier sports report on this show, a uh, number of months back, or maybe a year, <laughs> Uh, we talked about Shikari Richardson, the sprinter, who was not allowed to participate in the last Olympics because uh, she tested positive for marijuana, uh, which is a legal substance where she was up in Oregon, I believe. And uh, there's been a lot of comparisons between her being denied participation in the Olympics while Valieva uh, is allowed to participate. Any comment on that? Well, I really like uh, Shikari's line on it, and it's because 
because I'm black. That's why they didn't let me run, because I'm black and she's white. <laughs> I kind of like that line. Uh, it's a little superficial. Um, how much credence it has, I don't know. Uh, it's a damn shame about Richardson because um, it, th that's a not a performance enhancing drug. Cannabis is not does cannot improve performance. If anything, it detracts from performance. It takes a little bit of an edge off of explosive sports and it devastates any endurance, endurance or lactate threshold sports. So it's not a performance enhancing. She took it to as a response uh, for mental health. Hey, I, my, I, my mom just died <laughs> and I'm at the Olympic trials. I need to chill out. Uh, literally. <laughs> well, back to Beijing and the Olymp these current Olympics. Uh, you got any more stories? I know that uh, there were, speaking of uh, African-Americans being involved in uh, the Winter Olympics, there's uh, not that many, but there were a few breakthroughs this time. You want to share some of that? Yeah, I'm really uh, hyped up on uh, um, a young lady from Ocala, Florida, that won the 500-meter speed skating. And uh, Aaron Jackson, um, 29 years old, is the first African-American winner of any speed skating event, either uh, the big track or the short track. Aaron Jackson, the first African-American woman to win a gold or any medal. And it's not just that is the big part of the story. It's she never trained on ice in her formidable years. She was uh, in Ocala. There is no ice rinks in Ocala, Florida. She trained in inline skating with the most phenomenal coach that put together a tight group of really hungry athletes and youngsters that wanted to learn how to speed skate but did not have anywhere to train. People all over the state of Florida would migrate to Ocala to get to a part of this coach, this woman coach, and she put on inline skates, rollerblades, but not the four square rollerblades that you and I had in high school. These are all, all these rollerblades are in a straight line. It's called inline uh, blades. And it looks like a, a skate, but it doesn't perform exactly like an, a, a skate steel edge on ice but it's close enough on a firm surface. So they go to a high school track and in groups, they just start just like off a of speed skating as if they're on ice and they do the basic same technique of inline skating as ice skating. So get a lot of good power exercise, but they lose some of the nuances of being on real ice. It's amazing what Aaron Jackson has done to prepare for the Olympic games over this time. Plus, she didn't qualify in the Olympic trials. She fell during the 500 meters at the Olympic trials. She wasn't even on the team, on the U.S. team. What happened? Another woman recognized, hey, this lady's got the world record. I'm going to give up my spot and for Erin Jackson because she has the potential not just to place well, but to medal. And Lord, it came true that not only she medal, she won the gold. The young lady that gave her response, Brittany Bow from the same training group in, in Ocala, Florida. And what did she go on to do? Yeah, she got a bronze medal in the thousand meters. What a group of ladies coming from Ocala, Florida, speed skating when there's no ice. <laughs>
Well, Gordon Thompson, it's been great uh, getting your views on the Olympics. And uh, I know you're getting on a plane on Friday and showing up in Chicago for Andre Fombe's induction into the Loyola Sports Hall of Fame. And uh, I'm going to be seeing you and I'm looking forward to it. We'll uh, listen to the show together on WLUW 88.7 on Saturday morning. And uh, who knows what else will be going on that weekend. But, Sounds uh, good. And I really look forward to seeing uh, all the ex Loyola Ramblers. Oh, well, wait a sec. Not ex. Once you're loyal, a Rambler, always a Rambler. So always all the Rambler. good uh, men and women that I coached at, at, uh, at Loyola. And uh, it'll be great to be back on campus. Well, thanks a lot. And everyone else out there listening or watching live from the heartland, we'll be right back with a little bit more interesting uh, conversation and some good music. Stay tuned here on the left end of your dial. Be right back. That was Take Me to the River by Silk Johnson. And uh, we are glad to bring on our pal, our, our engineer when we we're in the studio, James Porter. Uh, good morning to you, James, and how are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing, happy to be alive. <laughs> well, within a week of each other, the brothers Jimmy and Sil Johnson both passed on to the great yes. spirit land. And their, mm -hmm. their passing followed the passing of another Chicago music icon, Sam Lay. Uh, you follow music closely and you write about it. Tell our listeners a little bit about the Johnson brothers. Uh, the Johnson they brothers, they were- a week of each other. They kind of came from a musical dynasty. There was Syl and Jimmy, who you know, and there was like a lesser known guy named Mac, John Mac Johnson, who played behind Magic Sam. Uh, he died like many years ago, uh, but Syl and Jimmy, Jimmy Johnson, uh, who we just lost, uh, we just lost Jimmy Ansel, but Jimmy Johnson, who we just lost, was more on the blues side, straight blues. He played in several bands for years, you know, did a lot of like soul music, like to get by and to get paid. And at some point during the 70s, he started focusing on all blues. And I think his first full length album came out for Delmark, like in the late 70s. And from then on, he just kind of like, you know, forged his own style, you know, uh, high-pitched vocals. He was a great songwriter, too, you know, which something really st stand, stood out, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a situation where a lot of blues guys would just do the standards. Jimmy had, like, you know, quite a few songs up his sleeve besides the, the song you expect to hear, you know. And um, also, too, as you probably know, after the pandemic hit, he was already in his 90s by then, but he was doing, like, these Saturday afternoon podcasts where he was a um, video podcast, I think, where he was like doing, uh, he was just like sitting in his living room, just playing the blues by himself, you know? And he's kind of kept that going up to the end of his life. And he was a very prominent man on the scene. And then we have Syl Johnson, you know, who um, we lost like right after that. He was more on the soul end, um, cause he came, cause both he and his brother came from Mississippi in the fifties and they both uh, started out on the blues scene. Uh, Sill kind of gravitated more towards soul and he cut like quite a few 45s, so a bunch of different people. And then he had a big hit in 1967 with a song called Come On, Sock It To Me, you know? And um, that kind of led to like a whole bunch of different songs he did after that. Uh, he almost, he was so, he was like a singer, a producer, a guitar player. 
you know, songwriter, did all these things, like, you know, several, uh, not just triple threat, a several threat. You'd think he'd be like, uh, you'd think he'd cross over pop at some point, had quite a few R&B hits, but um, he was always coming close, but didn't quite get over the hump. But he still got his recognition anyway, you know, um, and as you can see from all the testimonials in the local press when he passed on. Was there an article in the reader about him passing? Uh, yes, there was. My friend Aaron Cohen did an article on him and for the reader, and I did something for Rock and Roll Glow. We both met and sort of knew Sill, you know, in different extents. Um, he was like a very funny guy. You know, I'm, one of my most fondest memories was I was in Memphis for a music festival where Sill was playing, right? And as it turns out, Sill was staying in the same hotel as me. You know, and I'm in the computer room one morning and who do I see sitting behind me but Syl Johnson and my friend Noah in that order, you know, and for the next 30 minutes or so he was regaling us all these stories, the people he knew and the people who ripped him off <laughs> and how he was slowly getting his money from the people he sued. He was very proactive because a lot of R&B guys from the generation, they were getting, if their songs had like an open funky breakbeat, they get sampled by all, by all these rappers. And, but unfortunately the rappers didn't pay. They just kind of figured that you didn't have to pay or the guy was too obscure to be tracked down. But as it turns out, Sill was never off the scene for very long, you know? And all these people like Michael Jackson and KRS-One was like totally jacking his stuff. But uh, he just went after him one by one and just did not stop and did not cease. And he just um, totally, you know, he, he was totally on, on the case. That's a good, That's a good story. story. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of stories. If you if you even met Silv like five minutes, I mean, there's like a lot of stories concerning him, you know? But yeah. yeah. I was not aware of Sill at all, but I, I watched Jimmy Johnson on many stages in Chicago. And yeah. He was around and doing, I think he was still, he was playing long ago enough to have seen him on um, the uh, stage in, on Sheridan Road. Michael recalled the place. Uh, Biddy Mulligan? Biddy Mulligan. Okay, Am yeah, I right? Yeah. I, think I mean, I saw player. Coco Taylor there. I saw Eddie Clearwater there. I think I saw Jimmy Johnson there. Well, I, I this morning I went looking for pictures and uh, I found a picture from the Cooperative Energy Supply event at the Midland Hotel where our friend Michael McGraw Piranha was playing. And it's a picture with the Piranha filling in on bass with Jimmy Dawson, Dawkins and uh, Jimmy Johnson. Wow. Mm -hmm. So that's the only time I remember seeing Jimmy Johnson. You should throw uh, that one up on this uh, program. I'm going to send it to the producer over there, Emilio Davis. <laughs> He's doing good. Uh, let me ask you, uh, James, what else is going on right now in the Chicago music scene that you would like to call attention to? There are, there are three musicians I'd like to call attention to. Number one is a guy named Justin Hill, who I saw at the Green Mill uh, like last Saturday. He was like really great. You know, normally another music that I listen to involves auto-tune, but his does, and I liked it. When I saw him, he played with piano and drums acoustically, you know, and every now and then he turned like this weird auto-tune effect to kind of like, you know, distort his voice a little. And um, it sounds cheesy when you hear it on Top 40 radio, but it sounded great coming from him, hmm. you know, and he's become my new, my, my new fave. Um, his, his own record's a little bit more produced than that, but I mean, he does wonders acoustically. I mean, he has the raw talent. Say his talent. name again. Say his name again. Justice Hill. Okay. J-U-S-T-I-C-E Hill. Okay. 
Yeah, and there's another lady I like by the name of um, God. Why am I, why am I blanking out right now? Uh, God um, does my heart good. You're so much younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, there's. Let me see. Bailey D. Thank you. Bailey D. A uh, rockabilly uh, uh, singer who's been around for quite some time. She's got a whole whole lot of energy. She has a band, she has a band called the What For I think, and uh, they've been playing around quite a bit, like at the Honky Tonk Barbecue and other places. And um, if you don't mind me getting a little pompous, uh, I have my own band now, the James Dean Joint. We've been we started woodshedding during the um, during the pandemic, you know, and uh, we finally got together by like I think January January of last year, I believe. My friend Dean Goldstein, I played harp on a CD. He did one of his old bands, and he asked if I knew anybody who could sing on this demo. He did, you know, and I said, oh, "Hell, I'll do it," you know. And so I went down there like in January of 2021 uh, to his place in San Luis and I sang. And we got to talking and we had a lot in common. He said, hey, want to form a band? You know, so fast forwarding to January 2022, that's when we played our first gig at the Green Mill as part of the paper machete thing. So, yeah. Well, let me say that I know that you're a man who knows a lot about music. You're a musician, a reporter, a multi-genre fan. How about sharing a little bit about your musical evolution? Where did it start? What do you remember? What do you want to tell us about you, you and your music? What I remember watching Soul Train, American Bandstand on TV when I was a kid. Uh, listening to Jackson 5 on a portable GE player when uh, I was around that same age. Um, additional input from my dad's blues records and the oldie station. You know, and then moving to teenage years, I started getting more into rock. I like a lot of punk stuff. And um, and uh, as far as the roots bands like the Blasters, you know, and brings up like Liola when I first started hanging around the blues jams and like Kingston Mines and um, and uh, Wise Fools Pub, you know, playing harp and singing, and that's why I first started a form my own bands, and that's the cereal box version. <laughs> that's a good version. That's a good version. Well, give us the cereal box version about the status of your hoodoo party, which used to be on the third Saturday of every month at WLUW, and on the book that you've been writing. And where's that at? So okay, the hoodoo party, okay. That will resume as soon as we can make it back to the studio. Okay. Yeah, I know you how know, that is. We're, right. we're doing you the Heartland at home until we get back in the studio. I, I know, yeah. So anyway, it's like, you know, and the book, that's still being hashed out. It should be. It, sh it should be. It should be finished soon. Uh, I have. A, I have other projects I'm working on too. Um, I've been uh, freelance for a bunch of different people, for like the Reader, and um, a newspaper out here in Oak Park, uh, Wednesday, uh, the Wednesday Journal. And I've been yeah, doing yeah. their doing their club doing their event listings, and uh, it's been like you know busy or trying to be. You tell know? tell us a little bit more about the book. It's going to be Northwestern University Press. Northwestern about. What okay, it's about the book's called um, the book is the book is about black rock musicians, you know, and uh, it will be coming out at, uh, hopefully from uh, Northwestern University Press. I'm hoping next year. Good for okay. you, James. Your, your oh, yes. writing has been stellar, and the fact that you work hard at it uh, shows. Um, so shine on, you crazy diamond. Uh, Back at you. We're going to uh, look forward to you being interviewed, I don't know, on Chicago Tonight by some of our friends once your book comes out and you'll be able to show clips of the James Dean joint playing. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. 
That's going to be a big joint. Oh, yes. <laughs> By the way, this has nothing to do with nothing, but Michael, your beard rocks. It's like y'all doing me, man. I don't know how long it's going to last. I'm getting, <laughs> I might cut it all off. You know, I'm a little mangy. So I know. I, I get bored with my beard, too. I've considered it. I've considered shaving this mess off, too. It's it's fun that you guys get to play with your faces that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think we're running out of time. Is that right, Michael? Yeah, we're getting close to it. We'd love to talk to you more, but I'm sure we'll do it again. And yeah, we will. Thanks, thanks for coming on today, James. And you yes. got to let us know when the James Dean joint is going to be playing because we want to go. Uh, and we'll tell everybody up, else my, about it. My son, Cadian, you know, who's been involved with Twin Peaks, he's got... Yes, a, I remember. He's playing a great band. band called Lake James next week uh, at the Metro. So more on that to come. I'm excited for him. And uh, I love when you guys and people I know are doing music. And you're one of the best, James. And we'll see you soon. It's been a good season for people named James, I guess. Yes. <laughs> right on. Hey. Oh, that was great hearing from James. And uh, I'm so happy he's uh, playing music. That's terrific. He's a good um, harp player, too. I know. So for everybody out there, thanks a lot for tuning in. We've been doing this for over 25 years. We brought you live from the Heartland. Now it's called Heartland at Home. Broadcast every Saturday morning, morning 9 a.m. Central Time on WLUW 88.7 FM. Streaming live from WLUW.org and archived on our channel at youtube.com slash heartland media we also can be found on spotify and google podcast type in live from the heartland um cable cast well, sometimes on channel 27 can tv mostly we want to thank our team uh the team now includes Emilio davis um lynn orman weiss uh, podcast director Gwen Brown, and every once in a while, Luis Mejia Aarons from Veracruz. We ask that you do good in the world. The world needs all the good that you and we do. All, all power, power to, to the, the people. people. See you next week. Have a wonderful week. Over and out. <laughs>